Colossians 1, sentences 15 to 29. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints." To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of God. Guys, thank you um, so much for having me at the, at the 4 o'clock service. Um, it's just a huge blessing for me uh, to be able to be here with you, with my uh, church family, um, and to be looking at God's Word together. I think as I kind of said before in the interview, like I just don't feel up to sharing this passage. I don't feel up to sharing the Word. Um, and it, it speaks to me as much as I could imagine it would speak to anyone else. It's just... Um, words of such, of like just really deep power. And um, look, I'm going to pray for us before we listen to this, just that. But before I do that, I'm going to just give us a moment of silence. If you just want to talk to God and say, God, if you've got things to say to me today, do it. Make my heart ready to listen. Just have a moment of quiet together and then, and then I'll pray for us before we kick off. Lord God, um, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you that you are the king, that as we look at uh, your word in Colossians or anywhere in the Bible, we see a story of you working through history from first to last, and a a story where Jesus Christ is the center of all things. Lord, we just pray that um, as we listen to you today, 
God, that you would move amongst us, that you would speak to us, that your spirit would be at work, and that we would have a full and bigger picture of the person of Jesus. That we'd have joy uh, as we know that we get to meet him and that in him we meet God. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So a bit of a real talk to start with um, this evening. I was uh, recently hanging out with my uh, small group, my MC, and uh, our leader thought, you know, it would be great, no, one of our other leaders thought it would be great to go and play some tennis together. And I think, you know, this really surprised the people in my small group, but like, I'm not actually the world's greatest athlete. And we went and, we went and played some tennis, and it became like abundantly clear quite quickly that like, this is just not so much my zone. But the funny thing is, right, I love playing sport. I, my parents uh, came here this morning, or my mum came here this morning, and they were always happy to put me into any sport I wanted to play growing up, and I always wanted to do it. I wanted to be involved. I played soccer from when I was like four and a half, for 13 years. Um, wasn't always great. I, uh, in those 13 years, I racked up a pretty solid goal tally of zero. <laughs> but, you know... <laughs> Look, I played a lot of defense, all right? And, you know, I contributed in other ways. Um, I brought the oranges for half time and things like that. And then as I, as, yeah, as I got older, I started playing, um, I played basketball, and I remember having a conversation on the phone with uh, an uncle of mine. And he was like, oh, basketball would be good. You're pretty tall. Like, you'd be all right at that. And I was like, you might, you might think that. Yeah. I actually remember, like, one, one game I was playing basketball, and, at the, um, and I didn't, you know, didn't got a whole lot of points when I played, and the ball was getting passed around, and we, we needed to score, and I put up a shot, like, right near the end of the game, totally missed through it, but it, um, but it banked in, kind of just, like, in total surprise, and I actually kind of looked around, like, looking to the ref, like, oh, that's not meant to happen, like, I assumed that something had gone wrong, there must be some illegality, um, and I was like, it couldn't be true that, that I've got this point. In fact, when I kept playing, um, as I got even older, I played water polo. And that was a sport that I was actually like, I was actually at least half decent at. And I remember playing games in, in my high school water polo team. And, you, you know, I'd swim to get myself open and someone would pass me the ball. And I'm like, oh, like, is this what people do in sports teams? It's like, what a great teammate. <laughs> like, not really getting that, you know, it was, just, it was just me that had had the experience of, uh, of not... Uh, of, uh, of not being part of plays growing up in, in other sports. I, um, <laughs> um, but you know what? Like, I played all this sport, and like, it didn't matter that much to me that I was, you know, look, we're going to call it slightly below average. Um, but I, I loved being in the team. I loved playing sport. I loved like, getting early to the game, and you're, you're stretching, and you're warming up, and then you, you kind of, there's a bit of a team talk from the coach, and you run out onto the field, and whether you win or you lose, you're kind of doing it together. There's this ownership that you all have of the result, and I just loved that. And I think because part of the reason I love that is like, you want as a person, there's this real deep desire to be part of a story that is bigger than ourselves, isn't that? I wanted to be part of something that was just beyond me. So it was great to be a part of a narrative and of a story that was with all of these people and that I could be a part of. And I actually think that that is a deep desire for humanity, a deep desire that we have to be a part of a story that is bigger than ourselves. 
Uh, as we look um, at Colossians, I want to start with just a bit of the, the context. It's helpful to understand as we read uh, Colossians, it's a letter to a city named Colossae in Turkey, that Paul, who wrote the letter, is thinking about a specific group of people. It is a message to us. It's a message that's full of relevance for us today. But it's also to understand, and we can understand it reading it like that. But there's a depth to it that we get as we, as we start to kind of grapple with who these people were that were receiving the letter. And um, we get the impression from, from Paul quite early that uh, there are some specific things about this place. He says, my goal, as in his goal in writing it, in, in sentence 2-2, in Colossians 2, he says, my goal is that you would be encouraged in heart and that you would be united in love. He wants them to be encouraged and united. He does want to build this church up. And you get this real sense of warmth and encouragement all through the letter. But Paul's also very clearly writing about a threat, a perceived threat to the church in Colossae. In sentence 2.8, he says, do not be taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophies which depend on human tradition and the elementary forces of the world, rather than on Christ. So there's some competing vision, some competing philosophy, which God's people are entertaining, that competes with their devotion to Jesus. He's also calling God's people to have a fuller picture of Jesus and to pursue Christian maturity. I think overall, this warning, though, is about, I'm going to use my nerdy word of the day, is about this syncretism. I won't use too much, but it's about synthesizing or bringing together ideas and, and values from the culture, kind of giving them Christian language and then melding them with, sort of a, with a somewhat Christian message. His warning is that the power structures and the stories and the values of the culture will just be imported into what's kind of the shell of a Christian faith, and that in that, Jesus will be diminished. There's a couple of things that I think Paul sees particularly. Uh, one is a, uh, is a submission of Christ's power to kind of the, the powers of the world at the time, the cultural powers, the political powers, the economic forces, of saying that those things are going to kind of take rulership and kingship. And Jesus can kind of fit in. Being a Christian can fit in as part of your worldview. It can fit in as part of the way that you live your life. But it has to sit in kind of submission to the overall kind of arc of what's going on in, in, in the Roman Empire at the time it was, so in, in Rome. The second thing, I think, was this uh, early type of thought. It would, it would later become, I think, Gnosticism, but at the time it was just this idea that, there was that, that flesh and creation and physicality were wrong, that they were bad, and that kind of a spirituality and like a higher plane of thinking were good, and that the key to human life, I think this view was popular at the time, the key was to kind of remove yourself from the physical reality and become, uh, and, and, and kind of through some, gaining some special knowledge, kind of rise to a higher level of transcendence, to a higher level of knowledge. It's kind of, you know, it's a bit, you know, a bit hippie-ish almost. If I leave behind what's, you know, what's kind of dirty and, and earthy and rise to this kind of higher level of knowing, then that will be what will be better for me. Both of these are subtly false stories. Power, following the powers of the world or, or, or following a deceptive philosophy. But you know what? I don't think that they're that different to some of the struggles that we have today. For our world, there is an idea that, it's quite, that is quite popular. Jesus is quite popular if he is just a figure of kind of spiritual meaning. If he's just a spiritual idea, we're kind of comfortable with that in our world. 
Part of that is, I think, because that when, when Jesus is just a spiritual concept, we can kind of mold him to pretty much just look like an idealized version of ourselves. Yeah, he's kind and he's good, but he's kind of just basically me with a few of the edges, you know, a bit shinier. Um, on the other hand, there's a vision of Jesus which we're quite comfortable with, with where he was just a physical person in history. Yes, he said some interesting things. He's had a lot of influence. He's, he was a big deal in his time. He's, and, and there are some things that he said that are worth looking at and worth commenting on, but his, his uh, impact is effectively temporal. It's just that's, that's where he was. We're going to keep him in that kind of historical box. I think that in our culture then, we have the, these diminished visions of Jesus that are, are more, you know, we, we're, we're, we're easier to, to sit with, are also combined with enormous pressures to bend our view of the world to the beliefs and the arc and the storyline that is kind of dictated by the whims of, of powerful people and powerful forces in the world. Whether it's the power of money or the power of culture, um, the power of political forces, the life we want is very often uh, dictated to replicate that of the wealthy or the famous. We look at Instagram and, and we can see people in the world that have wonderful things or that look successful, and we think that is what the narrative of a good life looks like. That's the story of a good life. We look at the um, stories that are painted in the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald or on Facebook or in our favorite TV show, or we look through the domain catalog and we see the beautiful houses that people can aspire to, and we think that is the, the call of what a, of, of the arc of a life looks like, and the temptation is to say as a Christian that our Christian life just fits into that story maybe in some of the crevices, but generally, we can follow that same path. It's a story that says that Jesus is limited. And Paul answers it. He answers it for the Colossians, and he answers it for us with a dramatic vision of the person of Jesus. A a, a picture of Jesus which is just beyond anything else we could ask for or imagine. He does this in three ways, and I'm going to kind of go through them. Um, this is a pretty heavy passage. There's a good bit of Bible. There's a good bit of theology in it. But I do think it has like, deep practical implications as well. The three things I'm going to kind of go through are, firstly, Paul says that Jesus is the king. Christ is the king. He says that we should adore him. And he says, follow him. Uh, in Colossians 1... And if you want to, this is the, the section where I think we're going to get most into Scripture. So if you have a Bible in front of you or you want to look at it, it will be on the screen as well. But in Colossians 1, Paul answers these alternative pictures of Jesus. He draws both on images from the Old Testament and actually also language from the culture around him at the time to help paint a radical and beautiful conception of the person of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verses 15 to 20 is kind of the, the peak of this. Um, this is where Paul just opens up in his language. It's, it's interesting, actually, if you, if you read this part of the, of the letter, these five verses, it's actually Paul changes his meter. He changes his rhythm. It's like he shifts from speaking in prose to speaking in a song. So much, a lot of people that have read this passage through history have said that this is, it may well be a poem or a, or a hymn that was being sung in churches at the time that Paul's kind of picked up and he's appropriated and put into this uh, passage. And maybe the reason for that is I think that there are some truths 
there are some statements of, of magnificence that are just so wonderful that you need rhythm and melody and harmony to even start to give them the sort of dis- display of truth that, they, that really shows what they are. And I think that's what's happening here. Paul is like, it's the point in like that orchestral symphony, this part of the letter, where he's just, all the instruments are full, full on and going. Every harmony is playing. Um, in this section, um, Paul depicts Jesus, and he, says, you know, he depicts Jesus as both fully man and fully God. He's both the eternal one, the creator, he's the one who, but he's also the one who lived and breathed and died. He's the one who created the stars and the planets that were created by him and through him and for him. But he's also Christ who came and had dirt under his fingernails and mud on his feet. Paul starts with this line, he is the image of the invisible God. Hear that. When we see Jesus, we are seeing God. When we hear him speak in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we are listening to God. That was a world-transforming truth then, and it is now. Paul ties together the wonder of a world created by God. He ties these two ideas together, actually, which I think is a core tension in in human life. In one sense, he ties together the the beauty that we see in the world, and secondly, the, the tragedy that is that is a, an, an ever-present kind of element of existence. And he says Jesus is the one that ties these together. Because Jesus is the one through whom and by whom all was created. All goodness was created through him. All of the world's glorious beauty, its friendships, its love, the hugs of parents, the laugh of young kids, its surfable waves, its long walks, its good movies, its craft beers, its hipster coffees, All of that was good and beautiful and wonderful, was created by and for and through Jesus. It's tragedy, it's death, it's loss, it's brokenness. Those things are dealt with and resolved in the person of Jesus. He is both the maker of beautiful creation and the redeemer, the rescuer of that same creation. See how it says that, for in him all things were created, things visible and invisible. Nothing was created without him. But also, he's the firstborn from among the dead. Christ is God himself, come to earth, coming into our creation, into our world, suffering our suffering, dying our death, defeating death, and being raised to life. And it gets epic here because he says, not just as a per, a, an element of personal salvation, that's, that's absolutely there, but to bring all things in heaven and on earth to be reconciled in him. Hear that? Everything in the universe that is not right, reconciled and healed in the person of Jesus. Everything in the story of creation resolved in one resounding note on the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His resurrection is the central moment in history. He's the firstborn from among the dead. It says that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. God the Father had joy as Jesus was fully God living amongst us. And all of this, he says, is for a purpose. All of history has a singular, only purpose. That in all things, he might have the supremacy. Or I think it says up here that in all things, he might be preeminent. All 
Every moment, every part of history is about that focus, that in all things, Christ would be king, that he would be supreme. Um, I love the Lord of the Rings. I think the last time I spoke at church, I also used the Lord of the Rings analogy. So, like, my reputation as a nerd who likes midnight oil and Tolkien is, like, definitely, you know, doing well. But I love, um, if you've seen the films or if you've read the books, one of my favorite uh, bits, or, like, one of the, like, just an interesting bit is right at the beginning. You've got all these uh, little people, these hobbits, who live in a place together, and they're having a party for a guy named Bilbo Baggins, you know, significant, significant character, and along comes this wizard, Gandalf. And Gandalf is this tall, uh, grey-bearded wizard, and he kind of does a fireworks show at this party. And people are enthralled, right? All these hobbit people, they're saying, this cool, tall-bearded guy, he has a real gift for making things blow up. He's making great explosions. What, what a great guy. But you know, as you read it, and as you read the story as a whole, these people kind of having fun at this party, have, and uh, they have no imagination that the man that they're looking at, this Gandalf, is in fact one of the most important and powerful people in the world. In fact, their very existence and survival, and the survival of all people in the world, depend on the plan of this guy, and on his ability to enact it. This passage warns us from having the same view of Jesus. We want to see him just as a man or perhaps just as the source of our own personal salvation. We want his death and resurrection, if it happened, to be mostly about us, about me. But here we're invited into a much grander, larger, and more wonderful vision of the person of Jesus. He is the creator. His death and resurrection is about bringing all that is broken and wrong in the world back under one rule. I want to say something else about this part of the song because, it's, because it has a particular impact, I think, when we think about when and how it was written. I reckon when this, these five verses were read out loud at the time, it, they were illegal. Um, I would just say, I, I think about this. I, when I was 21, I was, living in a, I was living in Turkey, and I was in the far east of Turkey, which is a, a Kurdish area, so a different people group. And I went up to a mountain with some Kurdish guys and they were, um, there were two Turks in the room who didn't speak Kurdish. And uh, there was this guy singing in, in Kurdish. And my mates who were Kurdish started telling me the, the translations. And they started with normal songs about, uh, about um, love and romance and playing chess in the winter. You know, normal stuff that you people sing about. And then they started singing songs about revolution and about driving the Turks out of the area. And I realized we were sitting in a room where people were committing a crime for which they could go to prison for years. They were singing revolutionary songs. And in fact, the people they were singing about revolution to were in the room, but just couldn't understand and were kind of drunkenly singing along, I think. But, the, um, but the, that's what this song is like. Um, in, in the Roman Empire, the, the king, the emperor, is Caesar. Uh, the first Caesar is very um, well-known, Julius Caesar, and then there was Augustus, who kind of solidified the position of emperor. And he gave himself over time a number of titles. Listen to them. The father of the country. The preeminent one. The firstborn. The son of God. The head of all things. The high priest, the authority, this word imperator. The virtuous one. Paul here is writing in a way that gives, takes those titles 
rips them away from Caesar, from the highest power of the day, and assigns them to Jesus. You see this? There is, if Jesus is Lord, where Jesus is king, there is, then Caesar is not. Where Jesus is king, there's no room for other powers to hold sway. It cannot be Jesus plus something else. And ultimately, other powers, whether they be economic or cultural, whether they be philosophies um, or politics, any powers that demand allegiance, an utmost allegiance, I should say, will come into conflict with Jesus' claim to be supreme and ultimate. I think Paul's, the reaction he wants us to have to the person of Jesus um, is a unique one. Have you ever thought about the, what the greatest human emotion is? Thought about, is it maybe satisfaction with one work, one's work? That feeling of, I've done something? Is it being proud of what you've done? Maybe it's romantic love. Maybe it's a great friendship. Maybe it's achievement, power. I, I want to suggest to you that the greatest human emotion is adoration. It's actually, maybe it's wrong to even refer it to as, refer to it as, a, as an emotion. It's more of a, it's an affection to adore something or someone. Um, this seems a, 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 a bit contradictory, I think, or a bit, a bit uh, controversial for us. I was speaking at a youth camp um, last year, and this uh, young person asked me quite helpfully, he said, well, this is a bit ridiculous. Why would God, why would Jesus need to be told how great he is by us? Why would he need to be worshipped, which means giving worth to something, declaring something's worth? Why would he need allegiance or attention? And, and particularly, why would he want adoration? Is he just that self-aggrandizing? That he needs all of this, you know, kind of cosmic attention, otherwise he, you, know, you know, won't love the day? I um, remember, as I was thinking about this, I remember back to um, the fir- one of the first weddings I went to, which was what, of being like, you know, a real proper invite, not just being a kid that went along, but kind of two, two friends of mine got married, Dave and Fiona, both terrific people. Dave, uh, they came to um, City Light this morning, actually, so I embarrassed them with this story, but Dave's not the biggest fan of crowds, not the biggest fan of having uh, big groups or being the center of attention. Even though he's a primary school teacher, he doesn't mind getting up in front of kids during the day, but really doesn't like having everyone's focus on him. Um, I remember at, the, at his wedding day, you could see, like so many grooms do, like he's dealing with those kind of like awkward minutes before the wedding starts. You can see he's kind of fidgeting up the front. He's like kind of checking his suit. You can see just suddenly, suddenly it feels like it doesn't fit right. Is my tie on? Is the, are the flowers right? And then, you know, you get kind of to the moment where the bride is meant to arrive. And then he's like, you know, you can see that like, you know, he's thinking about, oh, What's happening? And he does that thing that grooms sometimes do where he goes and thinks, suddenly thinks it's his job to like greet every single person in the church. And he's doing those, like, so how was your morning? You know, yeah. Like, no one wants to talk about this, Dave. But, um, but he's so self-conscious, right? He's thinking, how do I look? When does this thing start? Where do I put my, why, where do I put my hands normally? I have no idea. What if I mess up the vows? You know? What if I say I'm marrying Mark instead of marrying Fiona? What's happening? It's an immensely happy day. All of Dave's best friends are there. His family's there. He's, he's dressed up as much as he's ever been. But he's not exactly loving life at that, morning, at that moment. But then the doors open. The music starts. The trumpets blare. The congregation stands. And the bride enters with a collective sort of intake of breath. Her eyes meet those of her husband as she walks towards him. And people look at Dave and he's got the biggest smile on his face. 
Later in the day, um, he said in the speeches, and he described this moment, he said, I'd witnessed a moment so beautiful, I, I couldn't have imagined that beauty existing before. He was the most amazing person I know walking through those doors, and all I could think about was how wonderful and brilliant and worthy she was. He had no thought of himself. He wasn't thinking about the cut of his suit or what he was going to say. All of his thoughts were on Fiona. You know what not a single person in the room said? How freaking selfish was Fiona? (laughs) Here Dave is. He's trimmed his beard, first time in ages, surrounded by all the people he's loved. He's wearing a suit, and she's stealing all the attention. Not only that, she's actually stealing his attention. Can't even think about himself. Let him focus on that for a moment. Because, like, I mean, that's silly, because we all innately understand that in, in that moment, there's an incomparable joy of the entirety of one's focus being on somebody else, being on another. It's, it's a moment where that, that, that emotion, that affection of adoration, which is other-focused, is so brilliant that it enlivens and fills every part of our hope and our, and our, our body and our lives. I want to put it to you that this is the deepest and most joyful human experience. Not the getting married, but the adoration. And, if the, and I think that the deepest adoration is in the one who is most tremendous and most great. And if Jesus is the most wonderful, as we see in this passage then the adoration of Jesus contains the deepest of joys. And, he is, and, and the joy that comes in adoring Jesus, in his full glory and in his absolute, and the absolute intimacy of knowing him as, as, our, as, as our Savior, is the deepest and most satisfying affection of human life. In uh, verse, I think it's in verse 27 or 28, he say, uh, it says, we get the um, word of God in all of its fullness. The mystery that was kept hidden from all ages and generations is now disclosed to God's people. To them God has chosen to make known, wait for this, the glorious riches of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The king in all his wonder and brilliance is the same king that dwells with and amongst us if we belong to Jesus. Hear that. Christ is the one through whom everything was created. With the purpose, the sole purpose of giving him honor. And yet that same Jesus offers us the intimacy of a parent sheltering their newborn. All through history, God's people have looked to God and his plan of salvation as though they were watching it on TV in black and white. And we, because we know Jesus and because we see him, we get it in full high definition color. This is the person of Jesus. This is God displaying himself to us. So adore him. Adore him. He is the universe builder, the purpose provider. He's the kindest of lovers, the soul refreshing, life enabling, affection enlivening, character transforming, joyful and joy outpouring king. Love him. For in knowing him and loving him is where we know truly ourselves and, the, and where we find real love. Um, in the Old Testament, um, 
uh, David talks about intimacy with God. David is a king in, in Israel, and he writes songs to God. And he says, um, in, in one psalm, Create in me a new heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit. That, that is the image of closeness with God, leading to transformed affections, transformed soul, transformed life. He says the same in Psalm 1. He paints this picture of a tree. He says he wants the tree to be fruitful, and he plants it next to, a, next to a stream of water. He says that water is the Word of God. It's the closeness to God being planted deep um, in the Word of God, in, in closeness to God, which leads to the fruitfulness, which leads to the transformation of character. You see, in Scripture, joy, the joy of adoration and intimacy with God and with Jesus is always partnered with a call to obedience. So that's a closeness to God is always, is always partnered with a call to obedience and the building of a new character. So much of Colossians is about growing in maturity in Christ. It's saying we need to have a full picture of who Jesus is and that will provide us with the source from which growth as a Christian comes. But you see, there's another element to this as well. If Christ is Lord of all, then his lordship demands your life as well. If Christ is Lord of all, then he demands your life as well. If Christ is Lord of all things, there is nothing that can stand in rebellion and opposition to Christ. If Christ is our Lord, if he's our King, we can't be casual. It makes no sense to be casual with parts of our lives existing in rebellion to God. Man, that slaps me around because that is me. Um, I live in Ashfield with my housemate, Tim, who comes in the, in the Arvo service. And I love living with Tim. It is so good. Um, he usually comes to this service. He couldn't, he couldn't be around tonight. He is just the best guy. Super lovely. When I get home, and he might have had the worst day, and he's still, he's just like, he's just like, Mark! And like, he's, no one's ever been this excited to see me, right? And, um, and like, we'll sit down, and like, before he wants to tell me about his day, he'll ask me about mine, we'll play some Nintendo 64, because old school, and then we'll, um, you know, we'll have a beer, we'll talk about things, he'll give me fashion advice, which I definitely appreciate. Um, we'll, we just, I love it. Basically, our rule in our house is that if you're in a common area of the, of the home, of the unit where we live, then that's, that's communal space. If you're out there, you're there to hang out. Um, and that, everything in those spaces belongs to us both, right? So if, if, if there's something in the kitchen, it's to be used by either of us. If there's something in the living room, you, anyone can, 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 um, can use it. Um, but the other part of that, because we're housemates, is that we have our own rooms. And the understanding is kind of like if you're in your own room, your own space, that that's sort of yours, so that means, like, if Tim wants to decorate his room by adorning uh, his bed frame with, like, ancient Japanese whiskey bottles, like, so be it. That's legit. I was gonna say, and if I, on the other hand, want to decorate my room by adorning it with every item of clothing I've ever owned, strewn about the place, you know, waiting for when I finally have time to fold it, um, well, then, you know, that's my, that's my game, right? That's, that's okay. Um, what I've noticed, though is that that's not the same if you live as a family. 
So if you're living in a, in a I see my friends who live with, with, their, with their partner and with kids, and you don't have the option of just like putting up borders between this is my part of the home and this is yours. You know, like it might be the parents' room, but at, at six o'clock on a Saturday morning, kids are going to run in and they're going to want to jump on the bed. You know, it might be, um, you know, you've set out like a nice living room, but really your whole house is effectively a play mat. Um, you might have, you know, my favorite books, but they're kind of mixed up with your books. Um, people are everywhere. You can't really hide very much. Your, part, your lives are just intermingled, and you've just got to come to terms with that. Is your vision of Jesus in your life, though, really much more one where he's just a housemate? where there are borders up, you're quite happy for him to participate in the parts of your life where he's welcome. You're happy for him to be king in, in the places where it's not difficult. But there are things that you just, there are elements, there are rooms that you are not going to let go of. Where are you in rebellion? What are the rooms that Jesus isn't welcome in? He's saying to him, you know, you can come to my church, Jesus. You can be in my church time. But don't try and change my relationship with my siblings, with my parents. Well, you get my marriage, God, at least on the good days. But don't talk to me about my shopping habits. Don't talk to me about my bank account. You're welcome in my dining room, God, when all my friends are together and we're sharing in a conversation, but... You better not come into the quieter conversations where my words are defined by spite and judgment and gossip. You're not allowed in my workplace, God. You're not allowed, Jesus, in my private life. You're not allowed in the car where I'm driving. You're definitely not allowed at the bar where I drink. You're not allowed in my mind when I'm at the gym. Those places, those are mine. I want to be clear, guys, the passage is meant to be an encouragement. Jesus offers you the deepest hope and the deepest joy because he offers you himself. The hope of glory. The hope of glory that is Christ in you. If he is Lord of all, he is also Lord of you. But he wants everything. He wants to dwell in every part, to have lordship, to be the king over every element of every moment. There is no relationship, no activity, no workplace, no ambition, no hope, no craving, no vocation, no moment, no passion over which Christ does not claim dominion. Paul is encouraging us here, but he's also got a note of desperation. He says, to this end, I strenuously contend with all of the energy that God has put within me. His desperate message is that we would recognize Christ for who he truly is in all of his grandeur, but also in his intimate closeness, and that that would call us to say, yes, God, you are Lord. He wants us to know Jesus so that that would be the the wellspring of renewal towards maturity. And brothers and sisters, that starts with submitting to Jesus, lifting up the parts of our lives that stand against him and asking God to take them over, saying, you are Lord, Jesus, you are Lord. He is king. Submit to him as Lord. He is king. Adore him with all joy. He is king.
follow him.